Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joy Newmeyer. Our guest today is Eric Scott, author of Familiar Strangers, The Georgian Diaspora and the Evolution of Soviet Empire. From Stalin's inner circle to dinner menus, the small nation of Georgia had a pretty remarkable influence on the politics and culture of the Soviet state. We'll talk about how Georgians came to occupy such a central role in Soviet history, as well as how this relationship unraveled. Familiar Strangers is published by Oxford University Press and is now out in paperback. It's a finalist for the Council for European Studies Book Award, the Central Eurasian Studies Society Book Award, and the Joseph Rothschild Prize in Nationalism and Ethnic Studies. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Glad to be on the podcast. Um, So just to get us started, how did you become interested in Georgia? Well, my interest in Georgia really began in Moscow. And so in a way, this project was was going back to to my original research interest, my original, I guess, culinary interest, because like many people uh, in Russia, I found Georgian food. And not only Georgian food, but being as, a, as an undergraduate Mos- in Moscow in the late 90s, uh, discovered Georgian culture and this multi-ethnic nature of, of, of post-Soviet Moscow, which was evidence of a of a rich multi-ethnic tradition uh, in the Soviet space. And uh, within this, the Georgian elements seem particularly visible and unique. Uh, not only did I spend a lot of time at Georgian restaurants, but I, I discovered a Georgian film series uh, in Moscow. Uh, I met people from Georgia. And uh, in a sense, then I followed my my palate uh, to Tbilisi, where, where after graduating, I worked for several years first for a community exchange program that really brought me all around the country of Georgia. And then uh, I helped establish a research center on organized crime and corruption in the Caucasus. And so uh, I spent a lot of time in Georgia and going back and forth to Georgia. Uh, I arrived at graduate school uh, at Berkeley with with all these diverse interests, all of them related to Georgia. And I wasn't really quite sure where to go with them. I had an interest in doing something on the history of the the great Georgian restaurant uh, Aragvi in in Moscow, uh, or on Lavrenti Beria and his police networks, uh, or on Georgian economic networks, uh, both licit and illicit. And it was in conversations with uh, Yuri Sleskin, my advisor at Berkeley. that uh, he suggested, why not combine these and look at this as as a broader evidence of a broader phenomenon, that of this this internal Georgian diaspora. And this gave me a really interesting way of getting involved in debates that were happening, that are still happening about the imperial nature of the Soviet Union, the multi-ethnic nature of the Soviet Union. And uh, it was a way of of doing so that, that seems novel because it wasn't just going to be focused on one republic in isolation of the others uh, or on uh, on a group that was you know simply restricted and only restricted uh, and oppressed by by the Soviet Empire but by a group that that moved throughout the the Soviet space and and this also I guess grabbed my interest not only because I had spent time in in Russia and Georgia uh, but but I saw in this parallels I guess with my own my own family's history too my mother uh, being an immigrant from rural Italy, and growing up, I I thought a lot about uh, this story of migration uh, to the United States. These the way these ethnic networks operate, and and I got to thinking about ways in which internal migration and diaspora within the Soviet Union might be compared with international migration and and these immigrant communities uh, inside the U.S. I'm tempted to ask you in much greater detail about your activities fighting organized crime in Georgia, but uh, <laughs> we'll save that. 
It was a very, it was a very interesting time. I mean, that definitely informed the one of the chapters of the book, which looks looks at these 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 economic networks. And there's a lot of continuity in some of these networks into the post-Soviet period. And it was a very interesting time because uh, in the late Shevardnadze era, where I went, when I was there, a lot of this this happened more or less openly because there was no fear of of uh, prosecution, which was was shocking and and uh, and definitely made itself felt in the country. But as a researcher, it was it was a very interesting time to be there because because you could research mm. this more or less openly and and get all sorts of information on what was going on by visiting these these uh, illicit marketplaces um, by by conducting interviews. And so that that definitely um, that experience definitely fed into the into the book in some important ways. Okay, we'll get back to organized crime and trade a bit later in the interview. Um, but for now, let's jump back to the kind of big history picture. As you mentioned, there's this, or alluded to, there's this lengthy debate among Soviet historians about whether the Soviet Union was an empire, and if so, what that implies. Um, so you say that in, in the book that the Soviet Union should be seen as an empire of diasporas. What do you mean by that, and how is this different from other conceptions of Soviet power? That's right. Well, I think that if you think about the broader literature on nationalities in the in the Soviet Union, uh, you had a wave of studies that looked at different nationalities in their separate republics, and these were really valuable books. And this was you know, path-breaking scholarship, and a lot of it done uh, in the original language, which which made it really interesting and useful. Uh, and then you had this move, I would say, in the late '90s toward empire, but but looking at empire mainly as 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 a form of of oppression uh, of non-Russian nationalities, which there certainly was as well. Uh, but in thinking about diasporas, and in thinking about particularly these internal diasporas, I think it's a way of of conceiving of this union not just as as a federation of separate republics but as as a space of of migration movement synthesis uh, performance and hybridity and and in thinking about nationalities uh, in motion in this space uh, i found that uh in looking at the georgians in particular this is a group that was not just simply subject of oppression or really the object of oppression as, as a lot of studies sort of hint at, uh, but, and not just in, imperial intermediaries who are sort of the go-betweens and this local elites that are, that are doing the bidding of Moscow, but really in many cases, the agents of empire. And I think this approach gets at a much messier, but more interesting concept of, of Soviet empire in which there are these blurred lines between colonizer and colonized, between center and periphery, an empire that is not simply a reincarnation of the Russian empire before it, but one in which a state based in Moscow is constituted by and seeks to manage a whole range of mobile ethnic groups, many of them propelled by revolution. Now, certainly within this empire, there are hierarchies and the state is uh, very much involved in managing difference in uh, defining the acceptable terms of difference, in some cases in engendering difference by reifying the concept of nationality and making it a entry line in the passport. Uh, and this, I think, you know, allows for all sorts of interesting comparisons as well. So uh, in thinking about empire, and I think the main utility of, of this label of empire because we could have endless debates about what it means and and how it's defined and uh, and what exactly are the boundaries of empire versus uh, colonial state versus nation state. Um, but I think the main utility is that it is comparative. And so what I also try to do uh, in taking this approach is look at the Soviet Union in comparison with other multi-ethnic empires. And that's Something that other scholars have done, and 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 I'm building on their work, but but also in particular this this notion of diaspora, I think allows for comparisons between the Georgian case that I'm looking at and many other 
diasporas, both within the Soviet Union. And so uh, one could write a book, for example, about the Ukrainian diaspora in the Soviet Union, the Belarusian, uh, the Baltic nationalities, the uh, Armenian uh, diaspora, the Tatar diaspora. Um, but you can also think about comparisons beyond the Soviet space. And so I try to to tease out comparisons, particularly in thinking about Georgians as, as I argue, as you know, in this typology of diasporas, uh, they are rather unique. They're not, um, they're not dispelled uh, through uh, forced displacement. They don't have a long history of diasporic displacement. They're rooted in a particular territory, uh, even if they seldom return. They perform their own otherness uh, rather than the culture of the host society. And so I draw some comparisons as well with Lebanese and Latin America, uh, a multi-ethnic though, though largely monolingual, monolingual society, uh, and Italians in the United States, which uh, perform difference in this, this framework of, of this or concept, however problematic, of, of, of a nation of immigrants with, with hyphenated identities. And so uh, this is sort of the general approach. Now, of course, I, I wouldn't say the Georgians are a typical diaspora in the Soviet Union, but I think in placing them in this broader typology, uh, we, see, we see this phenomenon that is, has largely been invisible, at least in certain, if we sort of focus strictly on, on, on archival records, because the Soviet state, although it engendered nationality, allowed uh, the reproduction of national identity, uh, institutionalized it in many ways, was also very cautious about managing this and, and um, did not allow for official diasporic organizations outside of home, home republics, generally speaking. Before we get a bit more into the particular features of the Georgian diaspora that you describe, um, it's something of a truism that the Soviet Union was dominated by Russians, first among equals. Um, but you emphasize in the book that the Soviet Union was never truly a Russian empire. Can you explain a bit more what you mean by this idea that Russians weren't, in fact, the dominant nationality? Well, so Russians were you know, the largest national group. And, um, but again, only around 50% of the population. And, and as we know, and as other scholars have shown, there was uh, a real movement. And I think the Bolsheviks took this seriously to try to contain uh, and restrain uh, Russian nationalism, particularly in the 20s and early 30s, and to promote non-Russian nationalities. And most scholars see this sort of ending by the, the mid-30s or the late 30s. Um, but what I see is, is a continuation of this trend, uh, certainly through Georgian political networks, which, which really run through the end of the Stalinist period, uh, but also the mobilization of these non-Russian ethnic groups to contribute in really important ways to Soviet culture, to Soviet uh, everyday life around the dinner table, Soviet music, Soviet film, Soviet literature, which in many ways is a, as a collection of translations of these, these different national groups. And so certainly you do see a shift toward some Russification, particularly after World War II, and particularly in the political realm. Uh, but this remains uh, a profoundly multi-ethnic empire in which a range of nationalities are encountered in everyday life. And uh, these, these groups have different repertoires, which, which they are sort of known for. And I don't mean to suggest that there are these monolithic essentialized identities, but what I look at is 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 what I call a, a Soviet domestic internationalism, in which, in which, uh, it's not just a, a hierarchically ordered friendship of the peoples, uh, with Russians as first among equals, uh, but it's this sometimes unpredictable mixing, uh, blending, and also uh, this emphasis on difference as a means of of success for many of these non-Russian 
nationalities who who have these performative repertoires that come with their own sets of opportunities and tensions. How did Georgia's role compare to that of other diasporas, whether in Central Asia or the Baltics? I and mean, how distinct was it? Well, this is this is so in, in describing them as familiar strangers. I really think this is uh, they are in this liminal space that makes them rather interesting. Uh, there are certain groups that are much more familiar and, and do tend to blend in uh, over time into the Russian population. So uh, if you look at, say, Ukrainians and Belarusians uh, as Slavic nationalities that have languages that are, are very close to Russian and uh, traditions that are relatively close to, to Russian uh, traditions and folk culture, literature, again, that is sort of intertwined, um, there is a certain, a certain familiarity that doesn't allow these groups to, to speak for this broader, diverse empire in the same way. And if you look at census records, uh, over time, many of these uh, populations, Ukrainians, Belarusians, uh, tend to um, become Russians uh, and, and even, even register as Russians in the census. Uh, then on the other end of the spectrum, I would say you have Central Asian groups that are more peripheral when the revolution begins in 1917, and, and we can talk more about the, the place of this Georgian revolution in this broader Russian revolution. Uh, Central Asian groups that have lower levels of literacy that aren't as connected to to the imperial, the culture of the imperial center that um, are in some ways less recognizable or less understandable to a broader and largely Russian Soviet public. And so these groups are seen as, as somewhat stranger, somewhat um, less capable of moving between cultures, although there are very important examples of, of Central Asians that, that do this. And then you have other groups, uh, for example, the, the Baltic nationalities who join the Soviet Union later amidst World War II. And I think this is this is very, uh, important because they do not play such an important role in creating the broader framework of Soviet culture. There's a much more of a of a reticence in a sense that this is a sort of forced participation in in Soviet culture. Uh, and so the Georgians again are sort of in the middle of this this spectrum of between familiarity and strangeness between. Uh, those forced to participate and those who enthusiastically join this this Soviet project and their rootedness in a Georgian Republic, which is a very, very important uh, phenomenon because as a Soviet state is managing this nationalities, it's very concerned with loyalty to the center and rootedness in the, in the Soviet territory, which is why groups like Poles or Greeks um, or Jews after the creation of Israel are seen as as ideologically suspect. Uh, Georgians are able to to use the resources of the republic in some important ways. Yeah, it also seems very central. It comes up a lot in the book um, the importance of the Georgian literary and high culture tradition. Absolutely. I mean, this this comes out of the the imperial period, the late imperial period, and you know, one thing I'm doing in the book, which I do strategically uh, by having each chapter focus on a particular realm of Soviet life when that that aspect of Soviet life came to the fore. Um, but I am looking at this this nearly hundred year period, and so this Georgian prominence does not simply um, it's not simply created from scratch, and it's not simply associated with the rise of Stalin. In many ways, it explains the rise of Stalin and and his cohort from the Caucasus, that there is this intertwining of Georgian high culture and uh, Russian high culture in the late imperial period. There is, of course, the fact that Georgians are, are Orthodox Christians and participate in some important ways in helping extend Russian power over the Caucasus in the 19th century. Uh, there is the fascination of of the Georgian intelligentsia with Russia and with exploring a broader intellectual world through a Russian lens, if you will. And this 
factors into my story and factors into the the rise of these political networks uh, because you have a Georgian socialist movement in the early 20th century that is both very much enmeshed with local Georgian concerns and with the experience of of Russian Empire and the experience of Russian Empire in a place where uh, most of the administrators are ethnically defined as Russians. Most of the local uh, bourgeoisie is ethnically defined as Armenians. And so there is this ethnic awareness, this, this intense uh, sense of, of a need for, for national uh, renewal and revitalization. But there is also this passion for participating in something greater than Georgia. And so the uh, both the Georgian Mensheviks, who ultimately form a fairly large block of, of social Democrats in the Russian Duma, uh, but also the Georgian Bolsheviks, who really rise to prominence outside of Georgia in places like multi-ethnic Baku, are very much interested in participating in a broad pan-imperial revolutionary movement, even if they define themselves as as anti-imperialists. It's pretty remarkable how after the revolution, what was referred to as the Caucasus group, which was dominated by Georgians and of course centered around Stalin, comes to basically run the affairs of the Soviet state. How did this come to pass? Well, as I said, there is this remarkable Georgian revolution within the Russian revolution. I mean, increasingly scholars are sort of thinking about the Russian revolution as this series of national revolutions, local revolutions. And and among these, the Georgians uh, are really unique. I mean, they are very much able to speak for revolution in this multi-ethnic context. And it's no coincidence that Stalin's first major position is as commissar of nationalities. This is someone who is non-Russian, who is able to represent a diverse a diverse state, a diverse movement, who is promoting his own expertise in understanding difference, in expressing difference, in uh, manipulating, if you will, ethnic difference. And and it's not just Stalin, but it is it is really a whole group of people uh, who rise up with him. Havel um, Yenukidze, who's slightly older than Stalin, uh, becomes uh, very important in the Central Executive Committee. You have people like Sergo Orjanakidze, who is the really the point person for the industrialization of the Soviet Union. Uh, you have all these other people coming up from the Caucasus, some of them not, not Georgian, uh, like Anastas Mikayan, who's an Armenian educated in Tbilisi. Uh, Kirov as well has substantial experience in the Caucasus, uh, in Azerbaijan, and this Georgian group or this Caucasus group, as as they're known, uh, has some advantages. A- as I mentioned, they they can speak for, they can represent, they are seen as as desirable because they can manage and express diversity. Uh, but they're also very very tightly networked in ways that are sanctioned by the Soviet state. Right? They are not. Uh, nationalities that are outside of the borders of the Soviet Union, right? Georgia is firmly rooted in the Soviet Union. Um, and this this closeness and this closeness expressed through ethnic and national terms allows them to to really mobilize in some really important ways. And so there are, of course, all sorts of other networks in the early Soviet state. There are networks of people um, who were in exile. Uh, there are networks of people who were in prison. There are networks of people who who formed these coalitions during the Civil War. Uh, but these ethnic networks are um, expressed in terms that are um, that 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 solidify more and remain more enduring over time. And um, this group in particular has access to certain resources. There are the resources of the Georgian Republic where they have these cadres of loyal people coming up who can be promoted. There are There is a fact that they all generally, at least the Georgians speak a Georgian language that they use quite a lot in their correspondence that functions in some ways as 
as a code language that allows them to express things in more intimate terms and to appeal to these these personal loyalties. And they have these rituals that they've developed over time, uh, really going back to the revolutionary underground of of feasting, of building these patron-client relations uh, that that translate really well in an early Soviet state, which is extremely chaotic and haphazard, and in which these personal networks, uh, which are often talked about as a late Soviet phenomenon, actually are really important to getting anything done uh, in this early period. And so they're they're relied on to a great great degree. Uh, they are um, something that is noticed by others. You know, Khrushchev in particular in his memoirs is is really critical of these networks. He feels in some ways excluded by them. He doesn't quite understand what's going on. Uh, but they do propel this entire generation of Georgian Bolsheviks from the imperial periphery to the center of this new multi-ethnic uh, revolutionary uh, imperial state. And uh, by the late 1930s, what happens is is Stalin begins subduing this network, uh, one in which he was certainly uh, first among equals, but in which there are these extremely close fraternal bonds. And this is largely a male-dominated group. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of uh, performance of, of masculinity in this, in this network and in some interesting ways. Um, and he begins moving against this group that he came up with. And so you have really the, the death of this so-called Caucasian group uh, by the late 30s. Orjan uh, Akidze, the commissar of, of heavy industry, commits suicide. Uh, Avil Yenukidze, uh, who um, was the godfather of Stalin's daughter, who was a very close uh, personal friend, family friend, is uh, arrested and ultimately executed. Uh, Shava Eliava, who was another another person who came up uh, from the Caucasus to become deputy commissar of foreign trade, is arrested and executed. And so Stalin was part of this group. Um, he uh, used them, he managed them, and then he largely discarded them. Now, what's interesting is after this group, you have a second group uh, of people who are younger, mainly around Lavrenti Beria, who, who is a uh, couple decades younger than Stalin, but who, who rises up uh, in this group, who rises up in part because this group vacations in Georgia, actually in Abkhazia, uh, which, which was a part of the, the Georgian Republic at the time. And uh, it's in these vacations and that these intimate networks are reaffirmed. It's in these vacations where a lot of work is done to run the state. And it's in these vacations where local Georgians like, like Beria uh, ingratiate themselves and make connections with people. And so Beria brings a whole another group of people up with him who become extremely influential within the NKVD. Uh, however, that's a group that does not perform its Georgianness in the same way and uh, is more or less uh, confined to to the police apparatus. And then with Beria's ouster under Khrushchev, he eliminates a lot of the top Georgians who are in these secret police and other political networks, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's really dramatic. I mean, if you think about um, Stalin's rule over over decades and then Beria's networks, which which really extend throughout the Soviet Union, where you have Georgians in top NKVD posts uh, throughout the Soviet Union, Ukraine, uh, the Baltic states, uh, Central Asia, uh, many places in Russia. Uh, you have this this extreme overrepresentation and um, and predominance of these these networks by a group that is you know, around 2% of the Soviet population. And, um, and this is something that's noticed. This is something that, particularly after World War II, uh, strikes people as, as odd as not befitting a, a state that is emphasizing Russian nationalism or national identity in some, some important ways. Um, and with the death of Stalin, and then with the, with the, the ouster and execution of Beria, 
uh, you really do have the the removal of these groups from from the center. Now, only political groups, I would say, are are removed, and um, and these groups um, and those sort of under them are allowed to continue to exert influence in in Georgia itself. But you do have the a, a very abrupt shift uh, with the ouster of Beria, and so uh, that's in fifty three. Uh, you really don't have a Georgian in a top political position until the appointment of Edward Shevardnadze as, as Soviet foreign minister uh, under Gorbachev in the 1980s. So this, this, this is a very dramatic shift in the Soviet political system. And you have a much more Russian and Slavic uh, Politburo after that. Before we leave Stalin entirely, a key part of his management style were these famous endless dinners in the Kremlin with lots of toasting and drinking and dining. Could you tell us a bit more about what these were like and how they related to popular consumption and leisure in the Soviet Union as a whole? So as far as I can tell, these feasts began more or less spontaneously around Stalin and he used them. I mean, in many ways, he ruled the Soviet Union from the dinner table. And of course, this was an, an arena in which the ability to perform Georgianness was both used to broadcast uh, diversity, but also those who, with insider knowledge and in how to conduct themselves around a Georgian table, could form these alliances with Stalin. And so you have people, um, obviously, who, who are from Georgia, who are singing songs with Stalin and Georgian and doing Georgian dances around the dinner table and giving Georgian style toasts. But you also have the imitation of these rituals. Uh, which were used to affirm friendship and, and closeness and fraternal bonds within this Georgian political network by by non-Georgians. Uh, and the style of toasting uh, becomes more and more popular to the extent that the Russian word for toastmaster, tamada, is a Georgian term that takes hold around this time. Uh, but you also have the spreading of these consumption practices to the broader elite. And now this happens at a time uh, where there is this receptivity to to this, in a sense, uh, with this rise in the 1930s of a Soviet middle class of managers and and uh, enterprise officials and party officials, uh, that there is this desire for expressing uh, distinction. That there is a more of an allowance for for things like fine dining, and so it's Georgian fine dining that is practiced in the Kremlin as Georgian fine dining that becomes in many ways a, the most popular, most visible form of fine dining in the 1930s uh, at a time when Soviets, I mean, debate what, what fine dining will look at look like. Uh, they certainly don't want it to look like the fine dining of the czarist uh, age. They don't want it to, to look like the fine dining of, of, of France, um, bourgeois France, which again was, very influential in the in setting the the menus of the uh, imperial Russian table. Uh, they want it to be something new. They want it to be something that is Soviet. They also want it to be something that can be made with domestically available ingredients. And so Georgian food becomes uh, the food of of celebration of fine dining. The the restaurant uh, Arag V is opened up. Um, in the late 30s around, and, 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 and becomes very prominent in the early 40s. It continues to operate actually during World War II. It's one of the few restaurants that's operating in Moscow. Uh, it's known as a hangout for, for people like Beria and others. So, so in dining there, you're not, only, you're not only eating like Stalin and showing your, your support for, for, uh, for the Soviet regime, but you're also networking with and interacting with and proximate to power. Uh, the food is also considered very good. And, you know, I have to sort of agree and uh, that, you know, Georgian food is is really delicious and uh, in particular when there's not a lot of other options. And so uh, the Arag V becomes a, a meeting place for all sorts of people. It becomes a very popular place for, for foreign visitors to the Soviet Union. John Steinbeck writes about it uh, at great length. And and of course, I see a diffusion from from this from the uh, Aragvi and from this this uh, 
really well-known dining establishment to uh, other restaurants and then to dining halls to Stolova, to the Stolovaya, uh, particularly in the 1950s when there was this push to democratize and mass produce these uh, consumption opportunities that in the 30s were really restricted to a small group of, of people in Moscow. Uh, and then you have all sorts of interesting and less predictable ways in which this is, this is diffused throughout the Soviet Union as people travel to Georgia, as people, you know, try to recreate Georgian recipes that are that are available in in Soviet cookbooks, interestingly, not just in the so-called national dishes section, but increasingly in the main section of the Soviet cookbook. And so these uh, these foods are not just so-called ethnic foods, they are also really Soviet staples and 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 accompanied uh, ideally by Georgian wine, which is which is increasingly available and by these Georgian toasts, which uh, Georgian style of toasting, which becomes more and more well known throughout the Soviet Union. So you do have this top-down diffusion, I would say, from from Stalin's table, but also all sorts of interesting ways in which this food is used and consumed. Uh, sometimes in in ways that seem almost anti-Soviet, uh, with these celebrations of abundance and uh, colorful toasts around the dinner table, and uh, and this can be both a way of expressing Georgian identity for Georgians, but also a, a cuisine of, of celebration, of intimacy, of, of uh, all sorts of affirming all sorts of personal connections among Soviets of different national groups. As far as the Kremlin is concerned, I guess it didn't become a staple, but an interesting footnote, you mentioned that Stalin coined his own Georgian dish, which was said to be quite delicious. Yes, uh, people, uh, and you know, and you can. I guess there's some some reason to believe that it was delicious because this is in Mikoyan's memoirs that he's writing after Stalin's death, so it wasn't just you know a matter of pleasing pleasing the great leader. Um, yes, he was he was intimately involved in a lot of things, as as historians know. I mean, he was he was something of a micromanager, and so he would get very involved in determining different types of Georgian wines that he liked. Um, he brought wine producers from Georgia to Moscow. He um, had meat shipped in, especially from, from Georgia. And, uh, and he had opinions about Georgian food, just as he had opinions about all other aspects of, of Georgian culture that became part of pan-Soviet culture, including Georgian screenplays, which he would sometimes personally edit. Uh, Georgian uh, books, which he would be, he would weigh in on, uh, and so this was was another example of his micromanagement, but also that you know the extent to which he was he was really involved in this, even as he was was running a gigantic multi ethnic state. Could you tell us the ingredients of his dish? <laughs> um, it was it was less about the creation of a new dish than about the combination of things. And so there was uh, potatoes and beef and bay leaves. Um, now, Stalin also liked to mix his wines together, and that didn't really catch on. So I don't want to say that everything Stalin did did catch on. He mixed red wine and white wine together, uh, which is sort of a, a, you know, like a faux pas around around a Georgian table, around, I guess, most most tables. Um, but yeah, he, he, would, he would carefully curate these, these meals. And it's just, it's a sort of interesting interesting detail uh, that Mikoyan gives in his memoirs uh, that show uh, how carefully he involved he was in these events and how, how essential they were to really to, to, to running the Soviet state, uh, that you had to sort of know what was going on, that you had to know what, what was different. Um, this, this is a new dish. Uh, this, is a, this is a particular toast that we give at this time. Uh, this, is, this is the new kind of wine that's in favor. All these these very seemingly minor details, everyday details, uh, have have all sorts of meanings around uh, Stalin and in Stalin's inner mm -hmm. circle. So after his death and his curation of meals and wines and many other things ceased, you read that there was a sort of paradoxical effort to quell nationalist sentiments in the Soviet Union by promoting national culture. How did this take shape with the Georgian Republic in particular, and how successful would you say it was? 
historians are beginning to look at this more and more, but there is a very, very significant moment in 1956 where on the third anniversary of, of Stalin's death, um, and this is, you know, as right in the aftermath of Khrushchev's secret speech in 1956, uh, there is an effort to mark this this anniversary in the Republic of Georgia, and there's an effort to to uh, clamp down on it by the center. And this becomes actually a very large scale popular protest in Georgia uh, that is violently suppressed and is not just composed of Stalinists and hardcore supporters of Stalin's policies, but by a whole range of people. You have students who uh, believe that Georgian national culture is under siege because of the rise of this largely Slavic political elite. You have Georgian officials who feel that they're going to lose what they see as their privileges that they gained under Stalin. Uh, and you have all sorts of other broader discontent that you have in 1956, you know, everywhere from, from Hungary to the Baltic states. And so this becomes a fairly large scale protest movement that is violently put down. And we don't know how many people are killed, um, but there is, the state is very aware and there are discussions immediately after that about how do you uh, continue to maintain and integrate a place like Georgia into the Soviet Union when you and it's not integrated through these these high level political networks. And so the support of Georgian culture uh, is foremost among these. And and in 1957 you have a major uh, decada or festival of Georgian culture in Moscow. So this is one year after there are these mass protests. And and Georgian cultural production um, is an arena that's seen as as acceptable. Uh, but is but is really used by by people from Georgia to gain prominence in new ways. And keep in mind, this is the time of the thaw, so culture is a very exciting field, uh, and not just you know, so broadly speaking, uh, literature, film, uh, music, dance, and so you have a new set of networks coming out of of Georgia uh, that that are specializing in cultural production. Uh, the Georgian Song and Dance Ensemble, which, which is founded about a decade earlier, but becomes extremely well known, is actually um, allowed to tour not just throughout the Soviet Union, but but internationally. You have more experimental forms of culture. So the first vocal instrumental ensemble, which is sort of the Soviet term for, for a rock band, is established in Georgia. You have uh, all sorts of other uh, forms of culture. Film, the Georgian film studios become really prominent. And these these uh, institutions, these cultural institutions, I would say, although not free from censorship, are allowed to push the envelope and do push the envelope uh, in ways that institutions of the center cannot. And so this is, this is I think, speaks to the, the nature of this Georgian diaspora as a, as a group of people who are seen as different, but operate within the confines of one state, can move between these local institutions that produce their films that uh, house their uh, musical ensemble or their dance troupe, but are allowed to travel and gain prominence throughout the whole Soviet Union, where they have a very enthusiastic audience. Mm -hmm. Is there a group that you would point to in particular? Well, I would say the group uh, Orera, that is the first focal instrumental ensemble, is a really interesting group because this is a group that is both performing a fairly by this point, familiar Georgian repertoire. And this, you know, again, I want to say the Georgian Georgian culture is not created from scratch in 1950. It goes back to the 1930s and 40s when a lot of these national institutions are given prominence under Stalin. And of course, then you can go back into the late imperial period where there is this renaissance of Georgian national culture and an interest in, in Georgian national culture. And so there is a as I would say, an established repertoire at this point that is fairly known of Georgian polyphonic singing, of uh, a certain Georgian style of dancing, a certain way of expressing Georgian nationality uh, through gestures, through movements, uh, through sounds that resonates with Soviet audiences that people sort of know and which the state uses to promote itself and to continue to promote itself as, as a multi-ethnic state. Uh, but this group blends that with 
the latest trends in in rock and jazz music. And so you have this incredibly interesting hybrid of of musical styles uh, in a way that is you can't say it's just Georgian or um, or just you know an imitation of of rock music, but really something something different. It's a Soviet cultural hybrid, and they sing in multiple languages. Uh, it's actually formed by students uh, from the the uh, the language institute in Tbilisi, and and their members go on to be these these Soviet celebrities. Um, perhaps two two best known members are Nani Bregvadze, who is uh, becomes a very famous solo singer in her own right, and Vaktan Kikabidze, who uh, becomes becomes a Soviet film star and stars in this in the Soviet Georgian film Mimi Nome, where he plays uh, a Georgian uh, pilot who ends up in Moscow, and so so that group I think is really interesting because they're they're both operating within this framework established by the Soviet state and funded by Soviet institutions, but also really pushing it uh, as far as they can in terms of the, the style of music. And they, they are imitated by all sorts of other, other groups. And so I see, you know, once again, just as you know, with the promotion of Georgian cuisine, the Georgian restaurant in Moscow or Aragvi, you have all sorts of other national restaurants like the Baku and the Ararat. You have all sorts of other non-Russian musical ensembles uh, throughout throughout the Soviet space that, that really follow in their footsteps. To move forward into the 70s, you write that Georgians came to occupy a very prominent, visible role, not only in culture, but also in the informal economy of the Brezhnev era. What were they trading and how successful were they? So what I see there is, is really the, the adaptation of these networks and the adaptation of, these, of this repertoire of, of performing difference and of, of certain attributes of these networks into... Uh, the the economy and the, so this is this is a time of a of a burgeoning second economy or or uh, underground economy and and there are all sorts of resources for these Georgian networks at a time when when there are a whole range of Soviet people um, you know, basically almost all citizens that are are really having to 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 engage in things like blot uh, engage in informal practices just to get things done and so. Georgia had, uh, through through Soviet patronage and through the uh, the establishment of Soviet markets that favored these domestic goods, uh, all sorts of things that were really quite valuable: uh, wine, uh, tea. Georgia is one of the few places in the Soviet Union where you can grow tea domestically. Uh, you also had uh, citrus fruit. You had flowers, uh, and then you had. The, the possibility, and again, this this you have to go back to the 50s to understand this. When when there is this sense in Georgia that some of these political pathways have been lost, you have the assertion of greater assertion of local control and the tolerance for for uh, more independent economic production to the extent that you have tolerance for for largely informal economic enterprises or the use of state enterprises to produce goods that enrich local elites. And so so Georgians trading in Soviet markets um, can bring these goods that were meant for the Soviet official economy and trade them informally at great profit. Uh, suitcases full of flowers that are sold on the streets of Moscow and lead to to all sorts of complaints that basically the Georgian flower companies are you know a million flowers short of their order, and these are all being traded informally, uh, oftentimes by the people on these c- collective farms and state farms where the flowers were being grown. Uh, Georgian fruit, Georgian wine, um, as well as sort of counterfeit Georgian wine. Uh, there are also more prosaic goods. So, so the you know these nylon net bags that become very popular and are sort of needed in the Soviet Union because uh, you never know where you're going to encounter a line and 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 it's better just to get in line and get goods and you can trade and barter them. Uh, that same economy, the centrally planned economy that's producing these shortages and this, this unusual distribution of goods um, cannot produce, you know, the bags that people need. And so there is a, there is a local Georgian entrepreneur. He's a party member. He's technically uh, a mid-level official at this factory, but he's basically turns this factory, him and people around him into 
uh, a source for the unauthorized production of these nylon knit bags that he sells throughout the Soviet Union. Uh, and so these networks extend throughout the Soviet Union, but they're really rooted in Georgia and they're, they're operating in Georgia where there is this tolerance. They're hard to fully understand because obviously this is happening in this informal economy. And so what I, what I try to do in my chapter on these is, is use these KGB investigations to determine the boundaries of these networks. And so I, what I find is that they are more or less tolerated, particularly in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, as long as there is not flagrant displays of wealth, as long as there's uh, not a complete disruption of official supply channels, as long as there's not informal uh, international trade uh, interlinking with us, there is there is definitely disciplining uh, when 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 there are Georgian networks trading on, for example, on ships going on the Black Sea. That is something that is not not tolerated. Uh, but they they really do thrive in this in this again imperial space created by by the Soviet Empire and by its centrally planned economy by all of its peculiarities. And this this really continues in the 70s. You have a crackdown under Eduard Shevardnadze, who who rises uh, in the Ministry of of Internal Affairs in Georgia, but really that only lasts for a few years. And so then you have these periodic crackdowns where things exceed their boundaries and the center is calling for this, this crackdown. And so people are rounded up, goods are seized. They do a couple of busts at local markets and then it, a few years go by and it resumes, it resumes again. And it's, it's really spectacular to think about uh, the extent of this. And this is, you know, part of the reason why Georgia was one of the most prosperous republics uh, in the Soviet Union is, is this participation in this informal economy. And by the early eighties, you have, uh, increasing involvement of organized crime networks rooted in Georgia in the informal economy that again is linked to the official economy and you have more and more audacious by the late 80s uh, appropriation and use of state resources uh, to the extent that there is actually a, a factory in Abkhazia making counterfeit Marlboro cigarettes by the late 80s and early 90s and so this is this is a really fascinating subject again this is one that I I hit upon when I was working and living in Georgia. And so what I'm trying to do in this chapter is, again, get at it through these KGB records, but also look at uh, inter through interviews with some people who were involved in the second economy, as well as uh, by an examination of ways in which this was more or less known in Soviet popular culture, of course, exaggerated in anecdotes that talked about this. Uh, but also commented upon in memoirs and literature. Uh, and and I see this not just as a purely economic phenomenon, but again, as, uh, as much about performance as it was about profit, because this particular repertoire uh, of Georgian difference, the sense that Georgians are rooted in this republic that has a particular set of resources, the fact that these resources are well known, that they're, they're celebrated in, in official Soviet culture and official uh, Soviet life, uh, gives these networks access to to uh, a form of of capital that they can they can deploy throughout throughout the Soviet Union and use uh, for their own interests. So it sounds like what we've been describing so far is really a very successful story of Georgians becoming very skilled at deploying these networks to capitalize on culture, um, economic products, a whole variety of things. But so then. What happens in the late 1980s? Um, a movie, Repentance, comes out, which is tremendously popular and is maybe the, the seminal critique of the Soviet past and present in the Gorbachev era. Why does the Georgian intelligentsia come to play such, such a prominent role in this sort of critique? And then how would you use that to sort of help explain what happens in Georgia around the collapse? Yeah, this is one of the central paradoxes of the book is that you have, you have this relative success of this group. And in some ways, it is a story of success, but it's also a story of the tensions generated by this success. Now, I talked a little bit about some of the tensions generated by by the prominence of Georgian political networks in the in the in the post-war period. Uh, but there was also, I mean, this success was not uh, uniform throughout the Soviet Union. I mean, I'm talking about particular groups that are moving beyond Georgia and using things, um, but they're operating 
with this particular script really that is that is might seem really new and exciting in terms of uh, the possibilities of, of uh, for Georgian culture to contribute to a multi-ethnic Soviet culture in the 1920s and 1930s, a, uh, a mission, if you will, that is really embraced enthusiastically by Georgian artists in that, that early period. Uh, by the 60s and 70s, there is an increasing weariness, particularly among the Georgian intelligentsia, who, unlike some of these economic traders, are much more urban and uh, and are very aware, uh, not just of Georgian culture, but also of how Georgian culture is seen uh, through Russian uh, eyes, and are you know moving back and forth in, in their bilingual and biculture in both Russian and Georgian culture. And there is a, a growing sense that this is this is a less and less authentic expression of what it means to be Georgian. That there is a certain sense of what being Georgian means in the Soviet context, and Georgians can play on this and use this and uh, engage in this this stereotype um, for their own personal interests and benefits. Uh, but there is sort of a weariness of this of this stereotype, that it is this mask that no longer really fits, that they're forced to wear, and, and it, it marginalizes them in some ways. It doesn't really allow them to participate in what Georgia intellectuals feel is the the heart of of Soviet high culture, and so you have these subtle forms of critique in the really going back to the late fifties and early sixties, um, and very much visible during the time of of Zastoy and the films like of Otar Yosaliani, where you have these this critique of of Georgian culture, a critique of the demonstration of Georgian culture, uh, the, uh, the sense that it's really confined to, to a few particular realms and not, you know, not, uh, not treasured for its depth and that it's sort of turned into a, a showy product, a Soviet product and not, you know, not something that is, that is authentic. And so you really have a crisis of authenticity. Uh, and this is expressed, it's felt throughout the intelligentsia, but it's really expressed in film. And again, film, um is a realm in which there is relative freedom and and it's sort of interesting because as much as these people are increasingly criticizing a soviet state that they see as confining georgian culture to a particular mold uh, they're being funded by by the soviet central government which which allows them to make films that frankly many people might not be interested in seeing uh and uh you know it's it, when i had Interviews with these Georgian film directors who who made these films that you know are are really pushing uh, the term allowable terms of expression and criticism, and there are, there's all sorts of interesting hidden messages in them where they might have uh, Russian tourists say visiting a, a Georgian uh, wine factory and drinking wine that that the Georgians know is spoiled and not knowing the difference, or uh, Russian tourists drunkenly uh, performing cheesy Georgian songs uh, in this in uh, this film, The Swimmer, uh, and really sort of making a mockery of, of it and, and turning into this just purely exoticized and uh, one-dimensional form of culture. I mean, you have that, but but these are films that are financed by the Soviet state. And, and these directors, you know, basically told me, look, yeah, it was it was really bad. And we had to play all these games to get things by. Uh, but really, they just kept on giving us money and and these are films that you know that the soviet economy sort of allowed to be made and and, and you know oftentimes at, at great cost and um would ultimately restrict if they decide to restrict them uh by not producing a lot of copies of the films now repentance is a film that that was that grew out of this this movement in in the broader georgian cinematic uh culture of the period um but went went a bit farther and and it was again tolerated at a local level because um it was allowed to be made um it certainly went beyond other other films in criticizing stalin who was both a georgian figure and a soviet figure uh more or less directly um but but it was allowed to be made because they they decided to to produce it uh 
for Ghost Teleradio, which was was less had less scrutiny from the center, and it was uh, a film that, although it came out of this earlier period, the sixties and seventies of this this, uh, and actually it was part of a trilogy that the director was making. It's the last film of a trilogy that the director was making. Uh, it was perfect for for Perestroika, and so uh, it was then promoted uh, to to broader Soviet audiences by. Um, by Shevardnadze, who was at that time then Communist Party chief of Georgia. Uh, he showed it to Gorbachev. Gorbachev believed the film would be useful as a way of generating debate about the shortcomings of the Stalinist past. And it became just an incredible sensation in the, in the late 80s. Uh, it won all these prizes. It was nationally known. It was internationally known. And it's interesting because it is a film that resonates with Soviet citizens. And so in that way, it is this product of a diaspora that are familiar strangers that do blend both the particular and the universal that do uh, understand what will make sense to people uh, in in a Russian cultural context. But there are also ways in which it is also very much a Georgian film and, and in particular uh, the dictator in the film who is a sort of mashup of Stalin but also Beria and, and Hitler um, speaks this heavily accented uh, Russian as Stalin did, but also in his Russian and, and in his Georgian as Stalin did, mixes in uh, Russian words, uh, has, you know, these these appeals to to just the formalities of high culture without a sense of this this moral mission. And so it is it is, I would say, a critique of of the Georgian intelligentsia of their the terms of their participation in the Soviet imperial project that that their their national culture is is losing its its moral foundations that their national culture is being compromised by their participation in this in the Soviet empire even though it very much is a film that is that is really that resonates and makes sense to broader Soviet audiences unfortunately we're about out of time so we don't we're not able to get into how this sort of national cultural mobilization really radicalizes in the late 80s, early 90s, and is ultimately, of course, turned against the Soviet state and perhaps Russia. Um, but you have some very interesting thoughts about that in the conclusion, um, and in particular comparing post-Soviet forms of migration across the former empire to the internal diasporas that you look at in the book. So I would certainly encourage our listeners to read it. Uh, but before I let you go, I will conclude with our traditional final question, which is, what are you working on now? So I'm actually working on a couple of things right now. The, the most immediate one is a, is a Russian translation of of this book and, and hopefully um, soon after a Georgian translation. But I'm also working on a, on a slightly different project on Soviet defectors and the borders of the Cold War world. And this is a way of continuing to look at migration and national mobilization, but across across state lines. And it actually began when I was doing my research for this book, although it's, it's a rather different, going to be a rather different book. Uh, but I, I found the story of the first Soviet hijacking, first successful hijacking, which occurred uh, from Georgia into Turkey in 1970 uh, by a Lithuanian father and son. So again, here you have you know, this, this, this internal diaspora. Here you have this internal migration that becomes becomes an international migration, and this father and son uh, are basically stuck in Turkey for 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 years. They end up in a DP camp, and you have both the Soviet Union trying to bring them back, the U.S. not wanting them extradited, but but not quite wanting them. And um, I got to thinking about defection, which again is such a well-known sort of cliche, if you will, of 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 the Cold War, of Cold War culture. But there's not been a lot of study. Of, of what it was. And I really see it as a global phenomenon shaped by this criminalization of emigration and and the sometimes encouragement of departure by by capitalist states. And so that study of hijacking will be will be one chapter of that that book, uh, which will look at movements in these disputed spaces of the Cold War uh, world, uh, air spaces, uh, the high seas and international waters, extraterritorial spaces, border zones. And that um, hijacking case will actually be the subject of an article that's coming out in past and present in May 2019. 
Excellent. And you do describe one hijacking case in the book um, that's sort of carried out by the golden children of the Georgian intelligentsia, which is really sensational. Um, so, I'm, yeah. Yes, it, it's a it's a you know it's a really interesting case, and that again is is I use as evidence of this of this disenchantment that the intelligentsia feels, and there is you know this increasing radicalization of particularly the children of the intelligentsia who really reject a lot of the choices that their their parents have made in terms of their participation in in the Soviet project, which you know starts off as as a way of participating in a worldwide revolution and in this remarkable big picture transformation of society, but is seen ultimately as constraining and confining. Uh, the irony being that with the with the collapse of this of this Soviet Union, you have these these diaspora networks that are really unable to translate their resources in the same way that lose lose audiences, that lose lose funding, um, and um, are now seeking to try to internationalize them with that. Certainly there's a renaissance of Georgian food that I <laughs> that I welcome. Uh, and people like Yotam Odolengi are writing about Georgian food. Uh, but there is there is there is a, a real transformation of these of these migration patterns after the the end of the Soviet Union. They might still go to Moscow, but their their place in Moscow is rather different. Well, Eric Scott, thank you so much again for speaking with us about Familiar Strangers. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this podcast on new books in Russian and Eurasian studies. 